Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where our goal is to help you find health and community through movement. I'm Molly Herford, a writer, coach, and yoga teacher. And I'm Peter Glassford, an endurance coach and kinesiologist. Every week, we're talking to athletes and experts who can help you lead your best active, adventurous life. Whether you're a gravel racer, a marathon runner, or you just got out on your first bike ride yesterday, we're here cheering you on. You can also visit us online at consummateathlete.com for coaching information and training tips, nutrition advice, yoga flows, bike skills, and more. And now, let's get into this week's episode. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Peter, how's it going? It's going well. I think we're we're nearing, you know, we've just gone past Halloween. We're into November now, so that is fall. That is uh, Christmas season. I was thinking about today on my ride as I was freezing. Uh, it was raining and also just around freezing. Uh, so I was freezing. And, you know, I, every year I talk about this, you know, fighting to be on the trainer and, and trying to not be on the trainer, you know, until December. Uh, which I've already sort of failed because we got a new trainer and I wanted to test it out. But I think I'm going to stick to this plan. And, you know, we do, we, you can run, you can do, you know, any of these other activities. This is the consummate athlete, but, you know, that's something I'm going to stick to. So, I mean, if, if you're also, you know, reach out if you're, if you like that idea and you're going to try and fight the trainer, even, even partially, maybe even, you know, mostly. I feel like that's like just a hashtag waiting to happen. Hashtag fight the trainer. Yeah, I don't know. Or like quit the trainer or what are we quitting now? We're quitting meta. I don't think we want to quit the trainer, though. Like, we both agree it is a, a useful training tool. True. Well, I mean, no one wants to quit Facebook either, but... Fair enough. There you go. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. I just had an excellent long run, followed by a pancake brunch. So, feeling good. I actually just said in my training log, I was like, I don't know why today's run felt so darn good. I think it might have just been that I knew that we had a, a pancake brunch waiting at the end. So maybe that just propelled me along. So maybe I need to really up my my snack game at the end of long runs. Or Sometimes my that, you know, what are you going to reward yourself with after something? I think that's that's maybe a good strategy for some people. Yeah, and I think I was just excited. It was like a nice little, little date. We went out, we had our breakfast. It was unlimited coffee. So it was my very American diner style situation. Yeah, I think it was, it was good. Well, and it let me, I, I do like the point to points when I'm trying to put in longer hours when the weather's poor, you, you basically have to get yourself to the place or else you're in the middle. And you're going to have a really <laughs> yeah, grumpy you, you wife who's go, just, just waiting back for pancakes. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. That's, just, you know, it is the fall. It is the season. Uh, so we'll be talking today a bit about going long. Uh, but before we get into, uh, you know, our guest today, uh, is there anything on the website that uh, we should all know about? Yeah, I mean, it is, it is for better or worse, the Christmas season starts early. Um, so we have been starting to roll out our gift guides. So we'll have a few of them coming out once a week throughout November. We have one up for cyclists and one up for runners now um, and expect a few more coming with just sort of all of our favorite things and things that we're actually giving people. Maybe a couple things that I have on my Christmas list. Hint, 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 Peter. Um, you know, well, there's just, a variety there, right? There's one for, is there yeah, like a runner's one? Yeah, I just said we have runners and cyclists runners, that'll cyclists. be up when this Dif one's coming difficult out. Difficult to buy for is coming down the pipe as well. Yeah, my personal favorite is that like hard to buy for, but then like a budget stocking stuffer yeah, one. Yeah, these are things that we've enjoyed using or have tested out or yeah, it's a good mix of stuff. So it's curated, I think, right? Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I'm excited. I, I love I love putting those together every year. Um, yeah, like look for look for those. And then we actually also just put out an article this past week. You know, a lot of people are in the off season, which we've been talking about for the last few episodes here. But just that the annual reminder of like, OK, once you're in your off season, let's check in on your your health. Do you need to book 
Let's start with the boring stuff. Do you need your any doctor's appointments, any dentist appointments, uh, gynecologist? Blood work. You know, I think the rule of thumb, I think, for people is, is you know, we do a, a once yearly, but you'll often see athletes up in two and three and four times, right? And it depends how hard you're charging and what age you're at. You know, some of this you might automatically do. Uh, but some people, you know, it has been a lot of years, right? And, and generally it comes back good, which is which is nice. But you also want to know, you know, the blood uh, can be a good indicator if something's sort of off, right? And it might, you know, lend a, you know, why you're maybe not recovering or fe- getting sick all the time. It may or may not, but uh, that's a good one. I was also just at the optometrist. Haven't had an eye appointment in quite some time. Uh, everything's good, but, you know, got in and did it. It was annoying. I didn't want to do it. <laughs> Cost money. Uh, but it's good, right? Eyes are important. You know, vision's important to racing and performance. So I actually am going to get, my eyes were twenty twenty. I had laser eye surgery uh, a bunch of years ago. Uh, so apparently it's been pretty stable, which is good. Uh, but there is that, I guess there's twenty twenty like, I guess, quote unquote, perfect vision, but there's like a slightly better than that as well, I guess, which I don't understand. Maybe we can have an optometrist on to talk about this. Uh, so I am going to get some custom lenses made for my, my racing glasses. I figured, you know, if I'm going to wear these glasses, you know, why not get a little, you know, supercharged there, you know, almost like the NOS button. Be really interested to see how these actually play out. I feel like even <laughs> if you hate them, you're going to have to pretend that you love them. Well, because... and I can never keep my sunglasses on is the funny thing. So, yeah. So anyhow, I did that. We'll see. We'll see if that was a good investment or not. But I figured, you know, I can pay $1,000 for a cassette or a couple hundred bucks for some lenses, I guess. So we'll there try it. Go. We'll see how that gamble goes. Anyway, if you want to find out more or like see our list of things, uh, we have that over at consummateathlete.com. And also, uh, you know, this is where a lot of people are reassessing their training. And, you know, you might be working off of a training plan. You might be working even with another coach or you might be totally DIYing it and just kind of going from day to day, figuring it out. Uh, and this is kind of the best time of year to take the time, get on the phone with a coach and actually talk through what your goals are, what your plans are, what structure your training could theoretically take. Uh, if you're not really ready to commit to having a coach, I think booking a coaching consult is one of like the best uses of money because they're they're fun too now is you know zoom is you know we're all getting fatigued on zoom but it's nice to see people you know see their face you know see what they're excited about uh and and it's all levels right like you say i I have a couple coaches that phone and we talk about coaching stuff maybe the athletes they're working on but sometimes you know coaches like to train as well often so how do they integrate you know training uh on their own you know with their coaching practice which you know is sort of specific to me as well because that's you know what i've been able to do moderately well i guess um you know, and we just talk about it. Not my app, you know, I don't have kids either, right? So, you know, there's obviously everyone has their own set of, of challenges and, and things that they're they're trying to, you know, get done. So we have that. And then, yeah, very experienced athletes. I have a couple more elites that phone and, you know, they're maybe directing their training, but they want to make sure, you know, they're not overdoing it or they get an objective set of eyes on their data. So we look at their data, you know, a season review is a good idea. And then more beginner people, right, who don't want to coach. They want to be able to do the group ride and stuff, but they want to, you know, also maybe maybe they're looking for like the, the secret Zwift workout they're going to do this winter on the trainer or how or they're going to do strength training week or whatever. Any of those things, right? So it's, you know, we all have sort of the things we're wondering about and spending way too much time Googling. Uh, So why not, you know, the idea with this is, you know, we sort of formulate a plan together. You maybe go and try it for a month or two. And then if you want, you can come back and we can see how it worked and and sort of like, you know, tweak the plan from there. So it's a pretty flexible and fun uh, 
service, I guess. Yeah, there you go. So you can find that is just over at consummateathlete.com backslash book hyphen a hyphen call, or you can just go to consummate athlete. We've got links all over the place. Uh, so check that out. Um, but on to today's guest. So as many of you know, we brought back the athletic bookworms, my book club, where we're, we're kind of picking a book every month. We're reading it. We're chatting about it. Uh, but really, it's just kind of my way of being able to nerd out and call it work, uh, reading books by athletes and experts who I, I really admire. We've gotten to chat with a bunch of them over the years as I did this for my my old website, and now we've brought it back for Consummate Athlete. And this month, we started with Emily Chappelle's Where There's a Will, which is her memoir about uh, racing ultra endurance races. And it is, it's such a good read. I highly recommend the book, but we also have Emily on the podcast to talk about ultra endurance racing. Um, if you are really interested in more of the writing side, uh, you can head over to consummateathlete.com to grab links. Uh, it, we'll put them in the show notes to the post interview that we did that was much more specific to her actual writing and writing process and how she went about putting this memoir together. Uh, but we didn't actually include that in today's show because we really wanted to focus on the actual bike riding side of things. And she didn't start really training for cycling or racing certainly till later in, in life, we'll say. No, this is why I think Emily and I get along so well is because we both kind of came from this background of not really being super athletic. And then in our 20s, we both got deeply into cycling. She actually ended up becoming a bike messenger, uh, turned endurance racer, turned rider, uh, just all of these really cool things. Uh, she does just so many awesome adventures. And I think just hearing from her makes you want to just explore what your limits could potentially be. And we do talk about the struggle of ultra endurance where once you've done something like Ram or the right. transcontinental. Yeah, where do you or, go? Can you go faster or, or do we go longer or, you know, yeah. <laughs> what's harder than which? I like that. And, and, you know, the one thing that, I, you know, as I get more and more, you know, whether they're, they, they're dragging me into it or I'm going into it, I guess is this, you know, the development and the long-term development and how do you get into sport? What's the optimal progression? And I like stories like this where it's, you know, she sort of either loved or, or, you know, practically used a bicycle. You know, she used it for freedom. She used it, you know, she was a bike courier, I, you said, right? So, uh, you know, she was getting paid to do it, uh, which I guess is enjoyable on some level too. Uh, and so you ride a lot, right? But it's 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 not necessarily this like you know we go and and ride in the same circle every week, uh, and and we call that development. It's you know sort of first loving the bike, and sure she rode a lot, right? And that's I think we have to you know acknowledge that like part of her development was she did ride a bicycle a lot, but it had this purpose, right? And and just sort of this really rich. Uh, environment where she was you know navigating the city and you know doing a task right which is sort of cool i like i like stories like that so very yeah. excited for this one yeah and personally i'm the most excited we talked a lot about the idea of competition and the idea of competition versus comparison and it's a subject that we both are as soon as we started talking about it, we were like, we could record, like, we could literally have a podcast about this not just a podcast episode we could run a podcast about comparison and competition and where they overlap and where they don't and what the mm. problems are and what the positives are with and how both do you, of those. how do you find success and enjoyment while you're getting you know maybe not winning exactly so it's it's such a good chat i think even if you're not interested in the idea of ultra endurance racing you will get so much out of this so without further ado let's get into this episode with emily chappelle make sure you head over to consummateathlete.com if you do want to hear her talk all about the writing process as well all right enjoy so first of all, uh, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you. Yay. <laughs> oh, really? Be here. 
So we need to go into just your origin story um, because you started as a courier, uh, you're writing books now, you're this ultra endurance racer, just crushing it. Um, how did all of this come through, come to fruition and how are you still doing it? Well, I mean, my origin story is not the very traditional one. Um, a lot of people, when they write books about their amazing careers, start with, you know, I learned to cycle when I was two. I was always really into it. I was seven when I learned to ride. I was quite a clumsy kid. I was not good at stuff like that. And it was an embarrassment to me and I think to my family that I learned so late, but I did eventually. Um, And then I had about a year as a teenager where I was actually quite into it. I did a bike tour with my dad, just the one. It was really good. And then nothing until I was in, well, I was 24, so really mid-20s. And then it just kind of came like a bolt out of the blue. Um, So I just moved to London after university and that was awful. Uh, A lot of people listening, I think, will have had the experience of being young and impoverished in a big city that they don't know very well. And it was just awful. Um, And I somehow got it into my head that I wanted to get a bike and start riding to work. Partly, I guess, because it would be cheaper. And partly, I don't know why, because I was also terrified and I... I couldn't imagine how people even could ride in a big city. Like I was like, is it even possible? Definitely you will have to be some sort of superhuman to do this. Like these people are clearly of another caliber. And I mean, to cut a long story short, I did within about two days, I was hooked and I've been obsessed with it ever since. So I just, I very quickly got into doing biggish distances. And then a couple of years later, uh, got another degree, failed to find a job, became a bike messenger hung around doing that for about six years, which really surprised me because I'd always been a very good girl and, you know, been good at studies, thought I was going to go on to be an academic, wanted to write books, never really had. And when I became a bike messenger, it was like my life finally started. I was so happy. I loved my job. I loved my life. I loved what I was doing. I suddenly started writing. I had, I don't know, the inspiration and the motivation to write. Um, And it was just great and then I was worried that obviously I can't do this job forever I'll eventually have to go back to being a boring normal person and so then I got into long distance touring uh, which again is you know you ride as your full-time job you see amazing things you write a lot you're happy you eat well and it's just all gone from there and then I've done bigger and bigger things because I now have a certain physical and mental requirement that I do quite a lot of cycling and uh I'm constantly looking for ways to kind of progress with my life a bit, but also keep an extremely high volume of cycling in there. I love it. I love it. Uh, And actually, that's something I kind of wanted to touch on. It's such a kind of almost problem in the ultra endurance thing where, okay, you do a 12 hour race and okay, what's next? Now it's going to be a 24 hour race. And then it's, I'm going to race across Europe. And then it's like, what do you do when you've kind of already done like the longest thing? How do you pick what's next? (laughs) This is actually my problem. Um, So I haven't haven't done any races for the last few years. I think ultimately racing was a bit of a blip and I'm not a racer, though I am constantly considering that because I like to do super long rides over multiple days and sleep in weird places and be exhausted and hungry and covered in filth. And racing was a really good way of enabling that. But I also, with racing, I didn't like the pressure, the competition and the constant scrutiny. And I'm in a really complex relationship with how to kind of weed out all the bits I did like 
but also leave out the bits I didn't like. And I don't think there's any perfect way of doing that. Um, but going back to your, your question, the sort of how, what do you do when you've done the biggest thing? I think I have done the biggest things I'm going to do. And I'm also at the stage where it's, it's really good actually, because I have so many times over my life as a cyclist, thought something was impossible and then done it. And then sort of thought something even bigger was not for me and then done it. I now sort of do think I can probably do anything if I really want to. And obviously that's great, but I really like a challenge. And I really like the kind of the doubt and the fear and can I do this if I work really hard and if I aspire. And I do sometimes actually feel a bit lost because I can find enough of the thing I love to do, but I am actually missing that challenge, which is why I might go back to racing. I might, I don't know. I think about it. I don't know if I'm going to. Man, that's, I completely understand that so well. <laughs> I think a lot of, a lot of people listening will get that even, you know, even if you're not doing, you know, 3,500 kilometer races, I think a lot of people are sort of like tapped out at the level they can get to as far as, you know, they just don't have time in their busy lives to train for anything longer, or bigger than what they're already doing. So what do you do when you're at that point? Uh, and you have a really, you mentioned just now sort of that competition aspect and I'm jumping ahead to one of the questions I wanted to ask you, but you have this great line in the book that we're obviously talking about, um, that all about like competition with yourself versus with others. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to read it because you were talking about, I think it was, uh, Juliana Buring, is that how you pronounce her last name? Uh, and you both starting the same race and still being able to like be friends and like have kind of comfortable conversations with each other and stuff, even though you were technically each other's like top competition. Um, you have this great line. Uh, perhaps it was that we, uh, we both knew we'd be competitive anyway, no matter who we were chasing. And it was comforting to share the road with someone else who felt the same way, who knew that no matter how sincerely either of us might strain to overtake the other, the real race would always be against ourselves. So can you just like unpack that feeling? Because I think that's a big part of like the racing conundrum because you're, you're racing other people, but you're kind of just racing you, right? Yeah. And I think there is more of that in ultra racing. Um, not that I have much experience of other sorts. There was, yeah, wait, uh, what was the shortest race you've ever done? 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just okay. getting warmed Right. And I mean, put me in a cyclocross race for 45 minutes. I won't even like, you know, I can't, I can't do fast. I can only do long and slow. Um, so what, what, what was the question? Sorry. Uh, just the idea of, of competition versus in, in races versus just with yourself. I mean, I guess to, to what extent, to some extent, like do races even matter? I guess if you're always, if you're more thinking about competing with yourself or is there still something to be said for competing against other people? It's, it's really complex, I think. I've thought and talked about this a lot. Um, I think when people say competitive or I'm competitive, I think that's quite reductive. There's quite a lot of different sorts of competition and ways of being competitive. Because I often feel like I'm really not, but I obviously am, and people are always telling me I am, so I clearly am in some ways. Um, I almost get put off by the thought of, say you and me were racing up a hill together. I mean, I would probably just let you go if you want to win that much. Because um, the pressure of it, there's a bit in the book actually where I'm racing up a hill alongside someone. And actually I do let her go because I think, well, I mean, 
we're going to be here all night and are we really just going to do this until one of us falls off the bike with exhaustion this seems a bit much um which is another reason I like the long races because when you're neck and neck with someone that means you're like within 50 kilometers of them (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I think also I I am very competitive I treat other people as sort of just intermediate targets you know if I'm feeling frisky and there's some another cyclist on the road whether they're in the same event as me or we're just out for a ride and so are they um it's you know I'll overtake them just to give me something to aim for um and also I think because I feel that as soon as there's someone else around I feel the pressure of okay they're ahead of me they're faster than me oh no maybe I'm faster than them but maybe not much and maybe I'll sit behind them and annoy them or maybe I'll overtake them and then I'll slow down and they'll overtake me and think I'm a loser or something and it's actually in that case it's just easier to speed up sprint for a while get them out of the way put them behind you and have the road to yourself again um so I don't even know if that's competition that's just kind of tidiness really (laughs) (laughs) I love that um and you you have you do talk about it in the book too the idea of competing against women who are your friends um, this is something that I struggle with a ton where I live. I have a bunch of like great women runners who I run with all the time. And there are a bunch of like local trail races and stuff. And I just simply refuse to do them because I just like, I can't be competitive with my friends because I'm a jerk. And I'm like, you guys won't be friends with me if I do this. <laughs> but I feel like the ultra endurance world might be a little bit more forgiving of like the, the like competition amongst friends. I think so. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, what you said about being a jerk, that is something I think about because I am worried that there is an evil competitive animal inside me and I'm a bit nervous about people seeing it. Um, oh, I know there's one in me and yeah, I'm terrified. <laughs> we both have it. Um, riding with other people actually helped me a bit with that because for so long I rode on my own. And then when I started doing big rides with other people, there were all these demons that I knew were going to come out and I was petrified and then suddenly all the women around me were also having all of their demons come out and I was like oh my god I thought this was my dirty secret this is everyone wow and it was so reassuring and um I mean that was more about the ways in which you suffer on the bike than the competition but I think that is that is there too and I've you know I have been eyeball to eyeball with um with women who were being rabidly competitive and so was I I think once you're both there in the moment and you're both doing it it sort of gets a bit easier because you're like oh in fact going back to that bit in the book where we're racing up the hill I think I say something where I felt something anyway that I I was bizarrely close to this person because we were both there in the moment doing and feeling the same thing and no one had ever seen me in that state before and I knew she was pretty close to that state herself and there was this moment of feeling really kind of intimately seen and understood and known and like, wow, but also technically we're in competition and we hate each other. So this is also a very vulnerable. And it was, I mean, it was that that was too much for me. Um, and I don't know, I don't even know if it's a gendered thing. I do think women are less encouraged to sort of explore these things and make them part of the way they go through the world. But I also, I don't completely feel qualified to say how competition among women might be different from competition among men. I mean, we, we don't do all the chest beating stuff, but maybe it's similar. Maybe it's not. I would mm-hmm. be interested as a male athletes about this. 
Yeah. Yeah. Which actually leads very neatly into this other uh, sentence I have like listed as like things I want to unpack. Um, you mentioned uh, in, in a, um, I guess it was some sort of talk or conference you mentioned, I was one of the only two women and had been in fact asked specifically to talk about my gender as though that were my specialist subject. Um, this kind of like, as soon as I read that, I was nodding. It's like, oh man, this grinds my gears so much because I feel like as, as women cyclists, we are really only ever asked to discuss women in cycling and asked to, I'd say, speak for women cyclists as a whole, as though we are just this like one, just like group over here. <laughs> so, but then again, that's, that's also how, you know, we've, we've made part of our living, right? So it's a weird, weird dichotomy. <laughs> it really is. I mean, we could go around in circles about this because I am sort of fed up of being a professional woman. Um, I mean, I don't even think I'm a particularly successful woman, but nonetheless, you know, that's one of my selling points. Um, and I certainly don't represent all women or even profess to understand much about any of them. But also, absolutely, I mean, I feel so passionately and have for so long about not only about bringing more women into cycling and all that cycling has to offer women, but about all women have to offer cycling because, oh my God, like I know more and more female cyclists. I mean, to be honest, I barely even see male cyclists anymore. I live in a very comfortable bubble. And I just think, my God, the people I know and hang out with and ride with, they're so amazing. They've achieved so much. They give so much to the community. They're so creative and ingenious and intelligent. And like we need all of this in the mainstream cycling industry and I want to bring it in um and yeah every now and then in the middle of that I'll be like oh, can you just stop talking to me about gender I'd quite like to ride my bike so I know I mean couldn't both <laughs> it's just such a it's such an interesting thing that I just keep coming around and around and around on <laughs> so I like that I'm not the only one trying to figure that out and actually, I feel like I'm not going to lie. I highlighted like half of your book because I was just like, oh, my God, I thought I was the only one who thought these things. Yeah, oh, I thought this was just me. Um, and one of the other things that really, really stood out to me, and I've been talking about it ad nauseum for the last like week, is this discussion of body image as cyclists. And you have this one fantastic line in the book um, where you're talking about a friend doing an online interview with you. And the quote is, I thought she'd be wiry and waif-like but she looks sturdy, stocky, and strong, which my unhappy mind translated to much fatter than I expected. I couldn't help but think I was failing to live up to my own reputation. I love this so much as a very muscly, small little athlete <laughs> who does not look like a normal cyclist or a traditional cyclist, we'll say. Um, so, I mean, how, how have you kind of come to terms with that and you know, digested that? Because clearly you've, you've thought about this a lot. <laughs> I have not come to terms with it. I am <laughs> right at the end of the process of coming to terms with it, mostly via Instagram posts. So I've started actually, like it's been years. I've been into cycling for I think 16 years now and just in the last few months. So that's like someone's lifetime. I have finally admitted to myself and started to admit to everyone else that I have never felt like I fit in, sometimes been told that I don't fit in. And have basically, like when I look at it, I think, oh, Dear, I, I was going to swear. Am I allowed to swear? You're allowed to swear. Great. <laughs> For the benefit of the listener, we are drink, well, I am drinking wine. Uh, Molly's not because it's... Uh, it is 1.30 here and uh, I still have work to do, sadly. <laughs> I, 
her swearing to do. So yeah, I, I've sort of been looking at myself and, you know, how I react to things, how I think about things and thought, oh shit, I constantly exclude myself on the basis of my size and assume that people wouldn't want me there. You know, in cycling contexts, in social, professional, romantic contexts, it's been there throughout my life and particularly in, in cycling. And also this assumption I have, and like, I do know what I have achieved in the world and I am aware, weird though I feel about it, of the status I have, I still feel like I am getting it wrong because if I go out for a ride with other women, the majority of them are much slimmer than me and small and have six packs and things and great. And it's just very, very easy even now for me to think, well, they've been doing lots of cycling, so they have lost lots of weight and they're very fit and they have visible six packs. My body must be wrong because it doesn't do that. Or I must be not doing enough cycling or doing it wrong or something. And I am like, I'm very happy in my life. Cycling is great and I enjoy my body now a lot, especially when I'm on my own and there's no mirrors or people in the, the area. So I don't really need to be all sort of boohoo, poor me, this is difficult. It, but Because it, I, I have a good solid basis. But it is, and I'm also increasingly angry that like, if I feel like this, which I still do all the time, and I have to coach myself through it, what hope is there for anyone who hasn't won enough races that people will take her seriously? And like, I am, I'm on the big side of average. There are loads of people bigger than me who are equally good cyclists. And, you know, also they don't have to be an equally good cyclist. There are loads of people bigger than me who are cyclists and who would like to be cyclists but probably are having all of the same damaging conversations in their head because of this ridiculous society we've created. And what I've also learned is there are loads of women smaller than me who also have these problems. And I find it really difficult to take that seriously because when I first started talking about uh, all of this stuff and body image, loads and loads of people got in touch. So I realized it was something that was hitting a nerve. And some of these people, I would think, you, but you are perfect. I didn't think this would mean anything to you at all. I've always seen you as perfect. Or people would send me photos and say, I hate this photo of myself. And I think, right, well, okay, I guess maybe that small wrinkle of flesh must be what you're referring to, but I would not have seen that. And at first, my reaction was slightly dismissive. I was like, well, you know, these people are fine. They have nothing to worry about. And then I realized, well, there are probably people who look at me and think, I don't know what she's complaining about. She's perfectly reasonable. And then I realized, wow, pretty much all women seem to have terrible body dysphoria. And what are we going to do about it? A hundred percent. Yeah. Everything you just said, I'm just like nodding along. So I'm like, yep, I've had the exact same discussions with all of my friends and I was even, I've been kind of trying to figure out a way to write about this in recent weeks, but like I'd had like for the past, I'd say 20 years, say I've had like lose five pounds as like one of my like resolutions for the year, like goals for the year. So this summer I had dental work done where I couldn't eat for a week, really. So I finally lost five pounds. I looked terrible. <laughs> it was not a good situation. <laughs> And I was like, okay, so this is, this is down five pounds. This is, this is like, this is clearly not a good thing for me. I've since gained it back. I'm right back to where I was where I'm like, really got to lose five pounds. 
even though I know from like months, it's, it's a very recent phenomenon that I know that it's not a good thing. I still have that urge. So, and I've talked to other women who like, I have, you know, a couple of friends who've done really big, big blocks of training or big races, ultra kind of things where they've lost a few pounds. And then they're like, Oh yeah, it's not great. I look like crap. And then they gain it back. And they're like, Oh no, now I've gained back the weight. And I was like, wait, you said you looked like crap. So yeah, I think it's, it's a pretty big problem where no matter what we do, we still have this weird feeling. Um, and you would think that being athletes, we'd be able to be really just proud of what our bodies are capable of doing. But I think as women, we still also have to deal with the societal pressure to look a specific way. And then the sport specific pressure of looking a certain way. So I don't know what the answer is. <laughs> um, I am, I am working on this. So I have no idea. And some of the big things I want to do next year are going to be around this. Um, one of the things I think needs to happen. And again, I don't know how to do this is to completely overhaul the way we portray cyclists and any athletes in you know, the media, brand campaigns, everything. Um, and basically what we're aiming for um, is to have like a group of people or a community of people where everybody looks different. So nobody fits in because there is no in, you know, so you can't see, you know, how do I measure up against this gang of people? Cause like, well, you know, they're all completely different from each other. So you just can't. And then, and I have, realize I've always felt more comfortable in whatever sense in a group that is more diverse because you know as soon as people start to look the same even if you actually do look exactly like them all you start to think ah how much do I conform to this and everyone is less comfortable Mm -hmm. Uh, and also I think um oh there was another thing I was going to say and I've forgotten you're going to have to cut this bit. <laughs> well, my other thing is going to be around cycling kit, because I feel like the cycling clothing does a huge disservice to women where I can be anywhere from like an XX small to like an XXL, depending on the brand. So I feel like that's, that's another big issue for, for women cyclists. It's just- that's something um, I just actually a couple of hours ago, I made another social media post about body image and the comments are rolling in because they always do when I talk about this. And a lot of people, it's not even what I was saying. People say, yes, this is my problem, sizing, how to get stuff that fits me and looks good on me. And it's better than it was, but it's still has such a long way to go. Like the Mm -hmm. sizing stops at, I think like a UK size 16, a US size 12. and I mean, I, I'm at the upper range of that and I think I should be considered relatively normal. So I don't know what you do when you're bigger than that. And also just the way the clothing is designed. It's, uh, there's a few changes I've noticed. There's a bit of a new fashion to wear kind of cycling shorts and a baggy t-shirt. Um, and I finally, because I had loads of prejudice, I was new cycling, you wear a zip up jersey with pockets in the back and it's skin tight and that is how it should be. And that is what I have always worn. And then this year, I started wearing technical t-shirts and I look way better. I feel way better. It's actually quite nice. It ripples against your skin. It's lovely. Um, And you get a bit of ventilation. So just simple things like that, like we can change the way people look when they cycle. And something I always want to say to the big brands is like, you have this power. Like I know the typical ideal is a slim, perfectly bodied woman in tight lycra, but 
you have brilliant creative minds. You have the power to take something very different and make it look good and aspirational. Like you should be able to take a large woman and put her in a different style of clothing in your campaign and for everyone to say, oh yeah, I will buy that. And if you can't do that, you probably need to consider recruiting different people. Oh, yes, yes, yes. My only fear with any of that is that uh, when you have uh, the the image of a cyclist and like the t-shirt and like the baggier shorts and stuff, there's a lot of women cyclists who get into it and don't know about bib shorts or cycling, uh, <laughs> the actual chamois underneath. <laughs> and you and I have talked ad nauseum in the past about our, our you know, best tips for saddle sores and finding the right saddle and all of that stuff. Um, so actually just kind of like shifting into that side of things as an ultra endurance cyclist, what have you learned in the past years about, uh, comfortable saddle situations because I do think as as, you know as long as we're talking about comfort and women we have to address that because it's such a huge thing I know I've heard from a ton of women and you've heard from a ton of women that they stop riding because stuff is uncomfortable and there's chafing and there's numbness and they just get off their bike and never get back on or they ride in constant pain I mean I've done tips with people and they just accept that they will be in a lot of pain or that they will always have open sores on their bottoms um and I've been trying to say no it shouldn't it shouldn't be like this there are ways um I mean what have I learned I've learned that I have learned on long distance rides that it's inevitable you are going to get saddle sore like if you ride your bike for two weeks without stopping I'm sorry you will get saddle sore at some point um not getting around that (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, if you don't, then I want to know how. Um, and I think what I've also learned, and this is partly um, or quite considerably based on the book that you wrote about it, because I've done I've done a bit of research into this and I've spoken to friends who've also um, done quite a lot of research. It's really complex. Um, there is not a one size fits all solution at all. Um, and I get asked about this. People say, could you recommend a saddle? And I think, well, no, I mean, I would need to look at you very closely in a way neither of us will be comfortable with. And also probably have more expertise that I don't have. But it's not that simple because to find like your ideal saddle recipe, there's about 10 different factors. So there's the saddle, it's width, it's amount of cushioning, whether or not it has a cutout. Then there is the bike fit. There's the, you know, all of this, but the angle at which the saddle is on the bike and how far forward it is. And also, you know, that your bars and what kind of angle they're putting you at. And then there's also your um, your clothing, your chamois, whether it's thin or thick, where the seams are, how well it fits you, whether it's the right width and all of that. There's your shorts. They are meant to be tight so the chamois doesn't move, but all, all you have to balance that out against comfort as well. And then there is your skin. So how susceptible it is to um chafing and infection there's pubic hair which is different for everyone I think for some people it works to shave some people it does not because their hair is different some people you know there's so many variants there as well and then there's the amount you sweat uh the kind of temperatures you're riding in I get more saddle sore in summer there's your anatomy and you know the the way that you're you're inner labia and your outer labia are made up the position on the saddle the amount of flesh you have on your buttocks and your inner thighs and where that's positioned the angle of your hips um I mean I'm forgetting half of it there's so much so 
Once you've ticked those 19,000 boxes and figured out each single thing, then of course, you know, the temperature will change around you and you have to go back to square one. Um, so it's really... <laughs> I love that list. That was amazing. <laughs> like you've done this before. But yeah. And I mean, I'll throw in like, if you'd been to a yoga class that morning versus the next day when you're a little less flexible or like, two weeks later when you've been riding for two straight weeks and you're a lot less flexible. <laughs> I don't know how you could even fix it because, you know, if you're going to do a race that lasts two weeks, think of all the things that are going to change in all of those categories during those two weeks. I mean, literally the amount of flesh you have will change. The temperature will change. Your bodily flexibility will change a lot. Um, so yeah, you, you just cannot... So you just have to kind of hope for the best. Yeah. I mean, that's like running a hundred miler and being like expecting to not get blisters or any black toenails. Like you're, it's just not going to happen. Like there's going to be some, there's going to be some issues. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So if you were going to give any, like, I hesitate to call them hacks, but like, are there any like super, super good tricks you've learned for that ultra endurance? Like, are you like a diaper cream person? What's what's the go-to when you do have saddle sores that you have to ride through? That's another thing. You know, do you use cream or not? And again, you know, there's I okay. won't go with the, the many options there are there because we probably don't have time. But uh, I think, I mean, if I have really bad saddle sore and I have to keep riding, I use Sudocream, um, which is, I guess, nappy diaper rash cream um i have been told by a couple of people that i can't remember the ingredient unfortunately but it's it's actually not what you should be using but it has worked for me so there are reasons why it shouldn't but it mostly does and if i have extremely bad saddle sore i don't often do this because i would rather not have saddle sore or not ride um but just put an enormous handful in so it's literally squidging around and probably coming out of your shorts and that just kind of i don't know keeps things going for a while gets you um, through <laughs> Yeah. So for multi-day rides, because I, I lead quite a lot of sort of multi-day people will be on the bike consecutively. And one of the, the problems is that if you're doing that, you have quite limited time to recover. Um, so, you know, your, your body is already quite compromised because it's doing, doing a lot more recovery than normal in every single aspect. Um, but also, you know, you, you will wear away your skin even if you don't notice it, you've lost a few layers. You might not be down to the flesh, but you will have lost a few layers and you need to replenish that overnight. But obviously your body is quite busy doing everything else. So what I say is you need to keep it as dry as possible, which means you need to keep it as aired as possible. So basically, you, as soon as you get off your bike, you get all your clothes off. I mean, you know, you may not have privacy, that may be a problem, but within what you can do, it might be a baby wipe behind a tree, you get yourself as clean as you possibly can, and then you keep yourself as dry and as aired as you can. So ideally, you'll be in a temperature maintained hotel room with a fan blowing across you and you will be spread eagled face down on the bed. Um, this is not always an option, you know, you might be sharing the room with someone or you might be in a bivy bag in a dip in the Italian Alps. But at the very least, I mean, I carry like merino leggings or boxer shorts or something and change into them because they're a bit more breathable. And it's just about keeping your, um, so when your skin is damp and warm, there's all that much area for bacteria to you know do their thing. So you need to keep it as dry as possible and give yourself as much air and also keep the pressure off it. 
So sitting down, not such a good thing, pressure, which is why you need to be spread eagled on the bed because then there's no pressure on the important areas. So yeah. I had not really thought about the, even the sitting down because I was about to be like, you could sit and just kind of like man spread a little bit there. But even that, like your sit bones are still then just like pressing into something. So that's hilarious. It's so, I'm so glad that you're saying all this because this is stuff I've been saying for forever. And it's always nice to hear it from someone else too. I once had a guy do, um, show me like a Petri dish where he did like a scraping of a chamois after a ride. And then like, kept it like in light just to like, or like in warm, like to show the progression of the bacteria, the gnarliest thing I've ever seen. And it has made me just like immediately like drop my shorts the second I'm done with a ride now. I want to see this. You have to send me a link. I'll have to find it. Yeah. It was the best thing I've ever seen. Like This is a fantastic science experiment. Thank you for giving me this thing. I can like explain better to people because that, that image like gets in people's heads. And I think that makes them, I'm just like, just, just Donald Duck style when you're done with the ride just, and you're good. <laughs> um, for women is you can wear a, a long shapeless skirt, mm-hmm. baggy shorts, but we can actually, you know, standing around is acceptable. Obviously lying down is better, but standing around wearing a long shapeless skirt. hundred percent. And everyone's like, wow, you look so fancy after your ride. You're like, yes, I, I know. That's why I'm dressed up like this. It's not because I'm trying to air out my, my bits. <laughs> it was a fashion decision, really. <laughs> uh, okay. I'm going to totally shift gears on us here um, because I really wanted to talk. You had a couple of things in here in the book that where you're talking about sort of this idea of like, I'm going to call it future thinking versus present thinking during these ultra events. And I think a lot of us do it whenever we're doing like a long ride or run. We have this tendency to like, okay, we're thinking about the next point, the next, and you, you say it as like the next bend in the road, the next sleep, the next meal. So you're going to keep going and keep going. And I was thinking about this and I was trying to like ponder why it like sat weird with me. And I was like, oh, I think it's because if I'm like on a run during the day, theoretically the run is my like fun part of the day. I use fun loosely here. But I'm always thinking about like next mile, next mile. When am I done? What am I doing when I get home? And then I'm like, why am I doing this to myself? When I get home, it's work. Like when you're done with the race, the race is over. You're back to real life. So I don't know. I don't really have a question here specifically, but I just kind of wanted to to talk through how you think about the whole future thinking versus being in the present moment during these events. Yeah, well, that has evolved for me. So uh, one of the things about these super long races is, I, I think for me, it was almost inadvertent. Like, there is no point focusing on the finish line because it's like more than a week away and you've got a lot of stuff to get through. So if you do, it's kind of, it feels both quite irrelevant and quite daunting because you're like, how can I cycle to Turkey? I can't even get to the next signpost. Um, so you do kind of, that just stays as a goal, but it's it's kind of an abstract goal. And your job is just to keep moving um with sort of less sense of location and then to keep yourself moving you set targets like get up this hill or get to that signpost or you know whatever state you're in it might be literally do the next kilometer and then you can have a break or it might be you know keep going for another two hours or something um I'm often quite embarrassed by how kind of short my targets can get when I'm in a real mess but Okay, I feel like your short is not our short. Your short is like, uh, seven hours from now. My short can be like the next kilometer and I might have a little rest before then as well. 
it's seriously it's one of the reasons I like ultra racing because you're usually on your own and therefore you can be really embarrassing and just stop every five minutes because I mean it honestly amazes me that I have got through races and finished them and done decent distances a day because there have been periods of time where I was just stopping it felt like every 20 minutes I would just stop and get another coffee because I was so exhausted but somehow I still made up the distance so time time does funny things I guess but then also what you were saying about kind of counting yourself down to the end of the race I very much do that and I do often think but why am I wishing this away when this is what I like doing I think that also it's I mean you know like is a strong word sometimes especially towards the end of a race um and that has been sometimes helpful, but actually I have also had, um, I think they call it finish line syndrome, you know, where you see the finish line quite a long way away and you think, oh, I'm done. And then the last section is awful. And I had that in the transcontinental. Um, I got to the Turkish border and from there, I think it was, I think it was about 200 kilometers, um, <laughs> which is a long way, isn't it? But because I- there. <laughs> Well, that's what I thought. And that was my big mistake. And I still think, I mean, I had some experience by then. What was I thinking? But I do, sometimes I still do this. You know, I go out for a 200k ride sometimes and think, oh, I mean, this will be nothing. I've done so much more than this. This will be fine. And then it's always hard. Riding 200k is always hard at some point, no matter how often you've done it. And sometimes it's really hard. And sometimes even shorter rides are really hard. And of course, if you have just been riding for 12 days, doing an average of about 300 kilometers a day, as well as 200K always being quite hard, you are already considerably impaired when you're, you're doing that. So I understand now completely why this was not going to be as easy as I thought it was, but stupidly I thought, oh, I'm nearly there. Oh my God, final 200K, I can do this. I've done this so many times before. And um, it was, I mean, it was awful in a lot of ways because a lot of different parts of my body were hurting in different ways. And I had lost the ability to tune it out for very long at all. So I was just really constantly preoccupied with particularly my saddle area. Um, <laughs> yeah, I could, I mean, I don't think I should go into details because people might be eating. It was not pleasant by then. Um, but I, yeah, I was also very, very tired and the, the distance just didn't pass. I kept assuming that at some point, cause you always, you know, you think, oh, so long to go. And then like the last 10K just disappear. Or, you know, you wake up and think, oh, wow, I've just ridden for two hours without even really thinking. And you check the distance, you've covered more than you thought. And just none of that happened. I kept checking the distance and thinking, I've been going for at least an hour and then you've done 5K. <laughs> Oh, that actually, what is, so what do you do with a, do you have your cycling computer? What do you have it usually set on that you're watching as you're doing these or do you have it like hidden or what's that look like? I don't, I try, I don't like to look at distances. I mean, in this case I was, and it was stupid. And in this case, I was actually just checking on my phone to see how much of the route was left. Um, I'm quite minimal technology wise. I have to have a device cause I need it for navigation. I generally don't look at speed or distance and stuff i've now got it set up kind of by accident so that it uploads to strava automatically but i try not to look at strava and i don't have many followers because i partly because i don't like it and partly because i know that again i have this monster inside of me that could get obsessed with it and i would rather not be doing that so 
So, yeah. Yes. Oh, I'm exactly the same. I actually stopped posting pretty much to Strava. Like I'll, if I do something really, really big that I want saved for posterity, I'll do it. But I, I used to have it just auto upload. And I actually, when Garmin got hacked like a year and a half ago, everyone got signed out of Garmin and had to re-sign in in order to connect back. And I just never connected it back. And it was the best thing I ever did. Cause all I would do is just like, see everyone else's stuff and like start comparing and start stressing. And it was not a good, it was not a good color on me. So that's I think a similar thing to maybe even why I don't like racing, but it does, if you let it, it starts to feed into that, compare yourself to everything, everyone else thing. And cycling is something I do on my own to escape from all of that. Um, I mean, I like it when there's other people around as well, but I don't want to take this precious thing that I have and just put it in that category with all the other things I do where I feel inadequate. So, so yeah. yeah, I think I, you know what it is, as you said that I'm like, I struggle with separating competition and comparison, I think, because competition is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's when you start comparing yourself to everyone else, that's where I think it it becomes more problematic so maybe maybe i need to dig into this more it's a good discussion i i would really love to to have the competition discussion a bit more because i feel like i've i've realized it's more complex than it is but i've never actually had the chance to properly figure it out i'd love to i don't know get a bunch of women together probably women and men in fact and kind of find out how it all sits for all of them and i don't know yeah. Okay. We might have to, we might have to round table this at some point soon. I like this. Um, and okay. So to, to sort of wrap up our, our discussion of ultra endurance here, before we get into our book club bonus round, um, I do want to talk about the idea of like the finish line and it, it not being the only thing and it almost being problematic because once you cross the finish line, you're back yeah. in the real world. And I actually just had a friend finish a 900 kilometer uh, running FKT and she got it and it was amazing. And she sort of said similar where it was just like the whole time you're like running for this finish line, but then you get there and it's like, oh shit, real life is starting up again tomorrow now. <laughs> like, okay, that's done. Um, how do you, I mean, I, I know in the book you've talked about this. So getting past that, like fi- the finish line blues, I'll call them in like a much more casual way than uh, you go into describing them. But how have you learned to kind of come to terms with that? Well, there's quite a few sides to it. Um, so I, I know, in fact, in, in the Transcon, just uh, about a day before the awful night of Saddle Saw and Never Ending Miles, I, um, I realized my mood had dipped a little bit and thought, oh, this is because I don't want this to end. And I know I'm coming up to the finish line now because being on the road was great. I mean, had my ups and downs but um it was a really cool groove to be in I was just having a great time and you know living to my utmost but obviously you know it has to end because you will eventually get too tired to continue and also you get to the finish line and yeah then life gets complicated and it also gets complicated at a time where you are more exhausted than you have ever been so not only are you going back to all of the thing, or not even going back, but even just at the finish line, you're like, oh, suddenly now I need to figure out how to get a bike box and put my bike in and get to a flight in a different city. And I mean, that's a hard thing to do at the best of times. And this is not the best of times. And then all the things that you your body has been holding back 
because I mean, how it does it, but my body kept going really well for all of that time and kind of quietened down all of its injuries and all the stuff it had going on. And then once I finished it all, you know, whatever strength I was using to hold all of that down, it all came up in all sorts of physical and mental ways. So you're really, it's like you've been storing up this kind of huge collapse, which you then go home and have. Um, and the immediate recovery is very hard. And it's, I've had it in different ways, physically and mentally. I, um, I had one year where I foolishly didn't really have a rest period, just I think I had a full week off, but then I got back on the bike and carried on as normal. And then I was ill all winter. I just kept getting really bad colds and was fatigued and thought there was something wrong with me and it was awful. And then the following year, I had a really, really bad depression for a few weeks, which is, it is normal and it is absolutely to be expected, but it's still really hard to go through. Um, and it's a really difficult thing. And then you've got this, um, my friend Mike talked about this. Um, there's this sort of identity crisis because you've just, uh, in my case, I had just won a race and actually like I was getting loads of attention for it and everyone was telling me what a hero I was. But there I was just like sitting in unwashed clothes, unable to feed myself, covered in zits and creaking and groaning and sore everywhere and feeling pathetic and barely able to walk to the kitchen. And so people are telling you how great you are, but you're thinking, but I couldn't do that thing that I apparently did a long time ago in another life yesterday. be so bad because like you have done this thing you did do it you do know you did but just the way you feel doesn't compare to it and um yeah it's it's really tricky and even now and just you know if I went out for a long ride tomorrow you get back and you're longing to get home but then you get home and you're like oh now I've got to deal with wet kit and I've got to sort my bike out and put the kettle on and all that difficult stuff and actually just turning the pedals around was so much easier it always is Although in some ways I actually find I get home and I have like a very satisfying, like 30 minutes of like doing the laundry and getting everything organized. And then once that's done, that's actually where I hit the wall. Like then it's like, Oh, okay. Now that's finished. Now I have to actually like sit with myself and like check my email. <laughs> yeah, Cause I've sort of realized the problems of finishing things and if I'm on, you know, a long day ride rather than a big race or something, I will often spend the last few miles, the last couple of hours planning my attack when I get home. And I did a 500k ride, it was a couple of years ago now. And the last section of the ride, because I was very, very uh, messed up by that point. And I was planning, I'll get in, I'll put my, and I was literally like, and as I do that with my right hand, I'll do that with my left hand. And I was planning, you know, what I would do in the kitchen and then I'd go upstairs so I didn't have to come and go up, up and down stairs many times. So it was really a carefully choreographed dance before I fell asleep in an armchair, having had my cereal and my tea. Um, <laughs> so that, and that kind of worked um, to, to not, I think it helps to not think the ride is over when you stop turning the pedals. It's when you've, you know, if you're on a multi-day trip and you're staying in a hotel, actually the ride is over once you've, got in you've put everything on to charge you've had your shower you've washed your kit you've hung it out to dry you've done anything else you need to do then you lie down on the bed fully naked with your ass in the <laughs> yes I love it um and okay would you say the 
which which would you find to be like a better situation if you go into the race with sort of then your next goal already sort of planned and on the horizon so you kind of can finish and like boom you have another goal or is that are we then like avoiding something almost are we like avoiding that feeling the feelings of the race let down if we immediately are just like okay next thing on the calendar um no i think it helps um yeah. well now i know i've done this for a few years i know how i how I work in this respect. If I do a big event, say in July or August, I need to take a month off. And people are often shocked by this. I take a full month off. I mean, I might ride to the shops, but I don't exercise for about a month. And if you've been on the bike solidly for two or three weeks, you kind of need that. Um, And then I start bringing the cycling back in. And if I've got the recovery right, I find I am gloriously fit. And it's really, really nice because you've kind of lost all of the fatigue, but you've kept most of the form. And that's wonderful. So I'll often have a really good autumn. And so knowing myself as I do, I know that if I plan something for September or October, it would probably go really well. And that would give me something to look forward to. And also something to help me keep, keep me on track and take the recovery more seriously. And also you know, then take getting back on the bike more seriously. But I think stuff like this works differently for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that you said take recovery seriously, because I think that's actually like the most important and like most kind of often missed aspect of that, uh, that getting back. So I love that you, you phrase it that way. <laughs> well, I, I learned the hard way. <laughs> I think everyone has to learn that one the hard way, unfortunately. Like it's a hard one to ever get perfectly right because actually, no, I think it's impossible to get perfectly right. Because I think if, if you never feel like you needed the recovery and your body is like always okay with it, that probably means that your training and stuff isn't going like to your full potential and you're actually like not pushing hard enough. So I think you need to play with that edge a little bit to, to find out where it actually is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is realizing that during recovery you will lose fatigue but you will also lose some of your fitness but you will lose your fitness at a much slower rate than you lose your fatigue so you've got to let the fatigue go and accept that you might lose a little bit of fitness but ultimately you'll be still way beyond what you were the last time you were on the bike at the end of the two-week race mm-hmm. so yeah kind of Awesome. Okay. Well, everyone should be able to uh, read more about all of your musings on this uh, in the book. So can you let everyone know where people can find the book and find you and and follow all of your excellent conversations on the interwebs? Sure. So the book, um, I mean, I don't actually know if it's available in many other countries than my own. I don't think it's got a distributor in Canada or the US, where I suspect most of your listeners are, but um, you can hopefully find it through your local independent bookshop. Um, I'm actually happy to send copies to people, but it does cost a huge amount of postage. Um, if um, And then you can find me on the internet. Uh, I tend to only have time for one social media form at the moment. So I think it's currently Instagram and I am Emily of Chapel on there. And I think that's about it. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you enjoyed this or any of our past episodes, do us a solid and leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And check out our book, Becoming a Consummate Athlete, over at consummateathlete.com. Questions or comments? Find us over on Instagram, at consummateathlete, and we will see you next week.